grab you a copy of the scriptures and turn to Psalm 11. Psalm 11. There's a bit of a contention in our home about how much I have embarrassed my children with sermon illustrations. Apparently, it's more than I remember. Because every time they get a chance to speak publicly, they return the favor. So I appreciate my children's love for their father. Hillary Clinton almost had it right when she said that it takes a village to raise a child. It does take a church. I praise God for your impact on my kids and on the other kids of our church family. It's not unique to my family. Eternity will tell of how God has used you in maybe just a short conversation or seasons of fervent prayer for the children of our church or some word of encouragement at a needy time or some note you wrote or just a pat on the back to let them know you cared about them and loved them. Eternity will tell how God used that in the lives of the next generation. So thank you for faithfully loving Christ, loving his church. May God be praised. Psalm 11 this morning is the text before us. In 2012, David Mullins and Charlie Craig walked into a shop in Lakewood, Colorado. And the shop itself specialized in baking cakes made to celebrate life's big events. And David and Charlie were about to go in their mind and participate in a big life event. They were going to fly to Massachusetts and they were going to be married to one another. And at that time, you know, way back, almost 10 years ago, Massachusetts was one of the only states that recognized and validated same-sex marriage. The two men planned to return to Colorado, and they wanted to throw a party celebrating their, their new marriage, and they wanted masterpiece cakes to bake and decorate a cake for their party. The owner of the shop, a man by the name of Jack Phillips, informed the men gently and kindly as he recounts it that They were free to buy anything in the shop they wanted to buy. He would not resist them buying anything, but he could not use his artistic craft and his skill of cake decorating to celebrate that which his worldview informed him was rebellion against God and sin before a holy God. Well, you know what happened next, but these men quickly filed suit with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission because they were sure that this was a case of discrimination, which was against Colorado law. Three years later, as the hands of justice move slowly in every case, it seems, three years later, in 2015, the Colorado Court of Appeals unanimously agreed with the ruling against Jack Phillips, saying that he did discriminate against these men because of their sexual orientation, and therefore he violated state law. Well, Jack and his attorneys appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, and as you know, two years later, the U.S. Supreme Court determined to take the case, and in June of 2018, they rendered their verdict that Jack Phillips did indeed have the religious freedom still in our country under our Constitution to not use his artistic skill to celebrate something which violated his conscience. And that's not the end of the story, as you know. You know that On the very day that the Supreme Court announced that they would hear the case in 2017, an attorney called 
Masterpiece Cake Shop and asked to speak to Jack Phillips and asked him on the phone if he would create a cake which was blue on the outside and pink on the inside in representation of a gender transition to celebrate this transition. Well, the attorney knew when he called what Phillips would say. It was a total setup, and so Phillips politely declined on the phone, saying he would not be willing to do that because it was an obvious rebellious act against God. That same attorney, you know, not being fit to leave well enough alone, called again. <clears throat> and this time he requested that Jake or that Jack make a cake that depicted Satan smoking marijuana to set Jack right in his worldview. Well, you know, Phillips obviously declined again, and the attorney filed suit yet again over those two encounters. The Colorado Supreme Court just recently announced, actually in October of 23, that it would hear that case against Phillips. They refused to hear the first one, and it got it skipped them and went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. But they have determined they will hear this case. Time will tell if that's a good thing or not. The attorney had already determined that he will continue to create scenarios and bring lawsuits against Phillips until he finally loses in court and either has to use his shop to celebrate what God hates or close his shop and cease to exist. This situation in Colorado is illustrative of what's going on around our country, I believe. The moral and ethical fabric of society is, is not just decaying, it's being actively destroyed. It's, it's being rooted out and pulled apart and thrown on the ground, burned down, and overturned and reconstructed. And the most foundational truth of all is that God created our world and therefore has moral and ethical authority over humanity and over human society. And so we must go after that absolute pillar of the foundation of a right worldview. And so the burning question for Christians in a world like that is, what are we to do? What exactly is the plan? It is as though we are backed up against a wall and the firing squad is aiming at us. We have a, a target between our eyes as Christians. And our culture has its finger on the trigger, ready to pull it and put us down. And I ask you, what is the plan? What are the righteous to do? That was the pressing question before David in Psalm 11. Before I read it, I want you to notice the descriptive header that comes right after the number of the psalm. This is to the choir master, and it is of David. There's no descriptor of when this was written by David in his life. There's no life event given as there are for some of the songs in the Psalter. He doesn't want to tie it to one or two incidents. He wants us to know that this is often the case for the people of God. And it's not unique to David. It's for public consumption. The whole choir is to sing this song put to a tune by the choir master. And they're to sing it in public worship so that the people of God can hear and believe and be taught by the truths of this song. In other words, this is a common dilemma for the people of God. We need this psalm as much as David's people needed this psalm 3,000 years ago. Psalm 11 says this, In the Lord I take refuge. 
How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for your word, which brings clarity to our confusion and truth to the world's error. We ask that you would help us to understand it in all of its parts, to comprehend your message to us from this text and the rest of Scripture about how we should now live in a world that is in chaos because they have abandoned you. Father, we pray that you would not only teach us, but inflame our hearts to walk by faith in a world filled with fear. Thank you, Jesus' name, amen. David's caught, as you saw, in the midst of an unsolvable knot. He cannot get himself out. Evil is abounding. The wicked have the upper hand. David's doom is sure, it would seem. And so what is he to do? And I think that is the pressing question upon the souls of God's people in the coming year as well. The headlines hardly need me to recount them to you to know they cause fear. I saw one last week that predicted with you know as much certainty as uh, economic prophets can that this year is the year for our economy to finally, to finally collapse and be eclipsed. Is it? Maybe. I don't know. What are we to do when the moral and ethical foundations of our society are being attacked and destroyed? Well, how does Scripture answer its own question? And just limiting ourselves to Psalm 11 to answer that question, there's two options presented. One is to fly and one is to have faith. One is to flee and get out of here, and the other is to stand firm in the faith. And David obviously is writing to call us to firm faith, not to flight. And as he lays out for us this call to faith, he has three looks in the psalm. In verses 1 through 3, he looks around, and as he looks around, it causes confusion. In verses 4 to 6, he looks up, and, and as he looks up in faith, he sees clarity as he sees God enthroned in his holy temple in heaven. And then in verse 7, he looks forward, and in faith, he sees what is to come, the victory that is ours in the Lord, and he is comforted as he looks ahead. So let's consider that first look in verses 1 through 3, looking around. And when you look around, it's confusing. He, As he looks around, he's not alone in his perusal of what's happening. In fact, there's a counselor there with him, advising him about the hopelessness of the situation. We have those, don't we? You, you know those whispers in your ear through social media or through conversations with friends or even fellow Christians or the talk around the, the watering hole in your office space. And people 
reminisce and talk about and try to discover how bad it really is. And you hear the word crazy more now than you ever have in the, the course of human history, it seems. That was crazy. We live in a crazy world. This counselor tells David that the bow and the arrow are readied in the wicked's hand. Not that he's ready to pull and shoot, but that it's already strong and pulled back, ready to release. The bow and arrow are the the weapon of stealth in David's day, a, a lethal weapon which you could use from a distance. You did not need hand-to-hand combat. You could take someone down without them ever knowing you were there. On top of that, the counselor says to David, they're aiming at you in the dark. They know where you are. They know how you operate. And they're, they're stalking you. And they're about to stealthily kill you. David, there is no escape for you. The righteous have no hope. And so this counselor, whether it be a friend of David's or someone in his kingly court or maybe it's a a wicked person who's bent his ear. Who knows? It's the counsel of human reason. David, flap your wings and get out of here. From the human eye, it is time to cut and run. Leave behind your gains and your losses because you're about to lose it all. Fly away and save your skin. Notice they're saying this to David's soul. This is not merely a physical matter in which they're saying to David, if you don't leave, you'll die. They're saying to David, if you don't leave, you will be destroyed in every sense of the word. They're saying it to the deepest part of David's existence. This isn't a a physical or temporary challenge that has momentary consequences. No, this is a a deep spiritual issue facing David. One that impacts him to the the core of his existence and the core of the existence of all who follow after him and all that he leads. The wicked are winning the day. David, what will you do? That's the question of verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what are the righteous to do? The word for foundations is the, the basic meaning for settled order. Everything on top of the foundation is held up by the consistency and solidity of the foundation. It's the settled order, not just of a building upon which we build structures, but it's the settled order of all things. We've already seen this is a spiritual issue attacking the soul of David. And now the counselor is saying they're attacking the the moral fabric, the foundations of society, the the ethical realities that guide men and women in life. And if those basics are destroyed, what can the righteous do? How should we now live? Take notice that it is not a matter of the goalpost being moved. I've often felt that in ministry, that as you are serving the Lord at times, it just feels like the goalpost got moved. And all of a sudden, like we're playing this game, and all of a sudden, I don't know what I'm aiming at anymore because things keep shifting. That's, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about something more fundamental than that. He's talking about something being torn down from its core structure. How should we live in light of that? Arno C. Gabelin, who is a 
scholar in the early 1900s said this was the burning question of his day. That was in 1939. James Montgomery Boyce said, What shall we do when the laws are not upheld, when morality is undermined and evil sweeps on unchecked? What shall we do when the Bible is undermined and its teachings disregarded, when even churchmen seem to support the rising tide of secularism? What shall we do when family values are crumbling and the tide of frequent divorce sweeps forward with increasing damage to children, parents, and society alike? What can we do when everything around us seems to be giving way? Beloved, that was in the late 1980s. If that was the burning question of 1939 and the burning question of 1989, is it not the burning question of 2024? Marriage isn't just suffering the decay of rampant divorce. Now we have completely defined and celebrated this redefinition of marriage in society. Beyond that, we've, we've taken the basic building blocks of, of human existence. We're not even talking ethical decisions now. We're, we're talking about the very way God made creation. Male and female, He created them. We now in our society say that though that foundational reality can be altered by the whim of a small child who at three years old when playing with a fire truck sees a doll and says, I'd rather play with a doll that must mean that that boy wants to become a girl, and so we need to begin transitioning them away from God's clear will for their life. If those kinds of foundational realities are up for grabs in our society, and they are, I ask you, what are we supposed to do? Not only are they up for grabs, but we are at the end of Romans 1, if you've read that recently, where God gives mankind over to their depraved rebellion against Him. and He goes through that list of all the things that come out of us when we're given over to our sinfulness. At the end of that text in 31 and 32, it speaks of how we celebrate and approve those who do these things. That's where we are. And that's the end of the chapter. That's where depravity leads us. We now not just question God's design, we now celebrate the opposite of God's moral and ethical will. What can we do? Well, one answer is to fly away. Maybe we just need to find a nice plot of land up in the far away mountains of Wyoming. I mean, we all love each other, right? I like you. I could do the rest of life together with you as long as there's enough room between our houses, enough trees between us. We've got enough farmers in the, in the lot of us. They could make our food, right? We've got enough other trades and crafts in our body. We, we could do this, right? We could, we could fly away and, and move somewhere and seclude ourselves and raise our families, and protect ourselves from the world. Maybe our flight doesn't even need to be that extreme. Maybe we can just stay where we are. And maybe we can just minimize how different we are. Because really, that's what's causing the problem. 
And that's what will cause us the problem going forward. Is when we say, no, that actually isn't God's way. When we say to our culture as the church, no, this is God's truth, not mine. So maybe we just need to soften the blow. Maybe we need to take our light and put it under a basket for a while. The basket can have a few holes, but for the most part, maybe we should just protect ourselves in that way. Maybe we should become spiritual chameleons who in any conversation we're in with coworkers, friends, neighbors, relatives, we know what saying the truth will create in that conversation. And so we not just wisely and compassionately choose our moment, but we morph to act as though we approve or at least don't disapprove. And in so doing, we hide the light of God's truth and protect ourselves, at least for the time, from the dangers that would attack us. Beloved, looking around is confusing. What are we? But looking up is clarifying. Notice how David starts the psalm. In the Lord, I take refuge. It's emphatic in the Hebrew. It's emphatic in the English. The whole thing, the whole quandary starts with in the Lord, I take refuge. He comes back to that in verses 4 through 6, and he explains to us for our own instruction why it is we should take refuge in the Lord. Why, instead of flying away and finding our own refuge, we should run to God. As we sung this morning, the name of the Lord is a strong refuge. The righteous run into it and are saved. The looking up is clarifying. The look of faith. What can the righteous do? Well, the reality is nothing. We can't, by our own power or our own effort, stop the tide of evil that is rising in the culture around us. I'll never forget standing in northeast Japan in the Tohoku region with Dave Barkman and Clyde Johnson as we were told by Dave the story of the tidal wave that came on land after the earthquake offshore of northeast Japan. I forget the exact numbers, but it, it caused a water tidal wave to come inland, rising some 30 feet. We read of stories in the museum there of, of people who tried to bolster themselves in or just didn't take the caution they needed to and didn't get out fast enough. And those are the stories of all those who died on that day. The only ones who, who survived were the ones who ran away because there was no way to stop the tidal wave. There was no barrier that was going to get in its way. That's us today. We as a church can't ourselves, by our own power, using our own wisdom and our own influence in society, stop what's happening. It's like a freight train barreling down upon us. Psalm 11's answer is to have faith, to look up to the Lord. Notice how the psalm, as I mentioned, starts with taking refuge. It's a resolved faith. Before he ever presents the problem, he presents to you his dedicated faith in the Lord. This is the refuge for those who are 
righteous. Notice that the righteous are the same as those who are upright in heart in verse 2. He's speaking of the same people. Verse 3, what can the righteous do? Verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous. Verse 7, the upright shall behold his face. To be clear, you bring to this text what the rest of Scripture says about who it is that is righteous. We've sung it this morning. You heard it read from Romans 3. We are not righteous by our own accomplishments. We do not make ourselves righteous by our own religious endeavors or our own moral actions. In fact, Romans 3 says there, are, there is none righteous. No, not one. And then it goes on to say the only way you can be righteous is by being in Christ by faith, based on his grace. It's a gift of grace to us. So who are the righteous? The righteous are those who have been saved from their own sinfulness and its consequence by Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Faith is believing that that is true. Faith is taking God at his word staking your eternity upon it. That's what David has done here. He's seen societal collapse all around him and the chaos that that creates. And he looks up in faith at the Lord and he sees the Lord. And what does he see when he sees the Lord? Well, he sees the Lord enthroned in his holy temple on his sovereign throne. You see, you look around, it's confusing. What are we to do? You look up and it's clarifying. Oh, God is on His throne. God is in His holy temple. It speaks to the unchanging supremacy of our Lord. No matter, no matter the latest invention of human rebellion, and they seem to have a new one every day. No matter the latest expression of their sinful wickedness against the Lord, the Lord is not disturbed upon His throne. He did not, after the Obergefell decision, have to call an emergency meeting of the Trinity and say, now what do we do? He has not, after the rampant increase of gender transition surgeries and chemicals given to young children to stop natural processes, he did not have to say, oh, no, I didn't see this coming. Well, he is on his holy throne in his holy temple. He simply is there and can never be removed. He's supreme overall, but notice being supreme overall, he is not separated from it all. He is not transcendent and disinterested. He is transcendent and quite aware. That's what David goes on to say. He sits in his holy temple on his holy throne, and he sees the children of men. His eyelids test them. Nothing escapes him. Where was God when Cain rose against Abel and struck him dead? Where was God when Noah's generation rose in wickedness and became so vile that it required a worldwide destruction and a reset. Where was God when the Tower of Babel people came together and said, let's basically make ourselves like God and rise to the heavens? Where was God when 
Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers for dead? Where was God when Joseph sat in a, in a prison cell, forgotten and despised and rejected? Where was God when Moses was cast out of Egypt and ran for his life and found himself in the wilderness? Where was God when his people existed under the hand of, of Pharaoh in slavery? Where was God when the children of Israel got into the land themselves and turned from God and started worshiping other gods, bringing vile wickedness into their land, sacrificing their own children on the high places to false gods? Where was God? Where was God when Jonah said, I don't want to do what you told me to do. I will do my own thing and go my own way. Where was God when Daniel and his friends were taking a stand for him in the land, and all of Babylon came against them. Where was God when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were threatened with the fire if they wouldn't bow the knee to Nebuchadnezzar's statue? Where was God when the people of God were in exile under wicked people doing wicked things, and his temple in his holy land lay desolate. Beloved, he was seated on his throne in his holy temple in heaven, seeing it all, using it all for his purposes and ultimately bringing about his judgment upon evil and wicked men. The text says, not only does he see it, but his eyelids test it. What he's communicating to us about the Lord is that like when you want to see something better, you squint at it. You focus in, you close your eyelids and drown out all the rest of the noise of what your eyes might see and you focus on that one thing. That's how the Lord tests everything. He sees it all. He tests it all. It's not just a general testing of the wicked, but David is also clear to say it's a, a testing of the upright in heart. Even those who take refuge in the Lord as they find shelter in His grace, they too are, are tested by the Lord. And one of the ways you're tested by the Lord is that you're put in a world that is contrary to Him, where it's hard to walk by faith. It's hard to say God is right, though every man were a liar. Part of God's testing of your faith is leaving you here. He doesn't put you on the fast track. He doesn't give you a shorter route to eternity because you're in Christ. In fact, it gets harder, doesn't it? Now you're swimming upstream. Now you're walking on a narrow path instead of a wide and smooth path. Now you're walking uphill instead of downhill as you follow Christ. It's harder, and by this you're being tested in your faith. Do you really believe God? Are you really going to follow Him no matter the cost? Is what He has said actually true? Will you stake your life and eternity on it? How else would that get tested except you had to face things like what you face today? But the Lord also tests the wicked. His judgments are just and right. His essence is holy. His character is pure. He hates the evil, the verse says, verse 5, and he tests them and hates their violence. You know why the evil heart loves violence, don't you? It's because it's, it's the only tangible, ultimate way that 
wicked men and women can destroy what God has made. You see, it's in violence that you take authority into your own hand and you strike something that God has made that's in your way of having whatever it is you want to build or make for life. And you say, my way's better and I'm going to take the reins. I will be sovereign here and this person no longer des deserves to live. And you kill them. And that in your expression of wickedness is your grabbing for authority like God's. Now God has authority to make life and to take life. And his expression of that authority is always righteous and just. But the wicked only have the authority to, to take it and buy it to seek to grab power. God hates that. He hates it. He sees it. It doesn't go past him. He knows it's there. And it's growing like a nasty stench into his righteous nostrils. And there's coming a day when he will rain down judgment upon all those outside of Christ. He's done it before. He'll bring fiery judgment again. Archaeology has discovered the remains of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the, the destruction by fire that is the most obvious in the Old Testament. It's in Genesis 18, if you want to read it later. Archaeologists kind of thought where they think it might be, and they started digging in the, I believe, the 1950s. And sure enough, they found under layers of sediment and rock charred remains of a former city. Not only that, but they found human bones that were warped by heat. told you before about Joel Kramer, his YouTube channel, Expedition Bible. If you haven't been hooked on him yet, you should be. Everything he puts out is worth watching. He's an archaeologist in the nation of Israel. He lives in Jordan, and he had seen in, in several museums in the Middle East these, these white balls that were called sulfur balls, and they were still flammable. You could light them, and they would, they would disintegrate in fire. He started wondering, where did those come from? And as he did some investigation, he found out they came from around the Dead Sea, and particularly the, the southwestern side, southeastern side of the Dead Sea, where Sodom and Gomorrah were. So he went, and he started looking, and he couldn't find any. He was getting frustrated. Why can't I find these sulfur balls? Where are they? And so he started talking to another Christian archaeologist, and he started explaining to him, well, Joel, if there's going to be anything left, it had to hit where there was water. So if it hit on the ground, it would burn up and they'd be gone. But if it hit water, it would be preserved, and it would stay. And so Joel started thinking through that, and he realized that the Dead Sea had receded quite a bit over the last thousands of years. And so he went to, by his calculations, where he thought the edge of the Dead Sea might have been when the judgment rained down from God on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he found the area, and he started digging and clawing away at rock, and guess what he found? Thousands upon thousands of sulfur balls. I was at a pastor's conference in October at Shepherd Seminary in North Carolina. Stephen Davey, the pastor of that church and the head of that seminary, held up one of these sulfur balls as he explained to us what it was. These were not the fruit of some cosmic event. This is not the result of some meteors colliding over Earth and 
falling down into our planet. These are found nowhere else on planet Earth. But here on the edge of the Dead Sea where Sodom and Gomorrah once stood. These are made by God himself. Sent from heaven. That's what Genesis 18 says. The Lord rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. Beloved, this is the portion for the wicked. It looks like they're winning the day, but this is their future. They are storing up for themselves the judgment of God through their wicked deeds. We, as God's people, take no pleasure in the death and eternal destruction of God's enemies, except in that God displays his righteous holiness through their judgment. For what kind of God would he be if he let men and women despise him, his way, his truth, and his offers of salvation? If he did not then bring upon them the judgment they have earned. Therefore, we, the righteous, are not to fly away like birds. We're rather to engage with the world in which we've been given. We're not to run for the hills in fear. Rather, we're called to go into the world and make disciples of Jesus. We're not called to hide our lamp under a bushel and hope the storm passes over as we come together in our holy huddle. Rather, we're to speak clearly and confidently and compassionately about the truth of the matter. We must let the world around us know that the consequences for rebellion is death and eternal damnation from a holy God. We must tell them that though judgment is coming, salvation is still offered. We must, like Noah and his family, stand before our generation outside the door of the ark and say to them, enter in with us. Everything's going to be judged, but there's a way of escape. It's right there. Come into that door with us and be saved. This is the message of the church in a wicked, depraved world. And know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a power of God unto salvation. It's not a hopeless message. It's not a powerless message. In fact, some of the ones you will leave from here and go say to them, listen, you must do business with your soul and with the righteous God to whom you will give account. Some of them whom you will tell the message of Christ to will turn and will enter the door of the ark with you. They will walk through Christ by faith into his eternal kingdom and they will be with you forever and ever before the throne declaring the glory and majesty of a good and gracious God. And because we believe that, we can take the arrows, we can take the fires of opposition and and persecution from our world because God's given us a job, given us the strength by the power of His Spirit, and He guarantees its success. Beloved, this is not new to the people of God nor to the plan of God. The world has always been the playground of mankind's rebellion. Just think of the Apostle Paul in the early church and particularly the city of Rome during the days of Emperor Nero. 
You think our leaders are morally depraved, and many of them are. Think of what Nero did. Early in his rule, he had his mother killed because she opposed his adulterous relationship with another man's wife. Later, he took that woman to be his wife, and when she got pregnant and he was not happy about it or with her, he kicked her to death. And then after he kicked her to death, he decided to do a state funeral for his wife. This is the, the wife of the emperor of the nation of Rome, the most powerful nation on the planet at the time. This is public knowledge, and they have a state funeral honoring the wife he killed by kicking her. He then, if it can get worse, he, after killing her, married a young man who he said, looked like his former wife. He took that young man, had him castrated, and then through a wedding ceremony with a dowry and a wedding gown, married him in all the public display of debauchery you could imagine. They would often go out together, one of them dressed as a woman, one as a man. Later, Nero set fire to his own capital city, Rumors are that he had a building in mind he wanted to construct, and there were things in the way, and he needed to get rid of them. He let the city burn, and then he blamed it on the Christians. He said it's their fault, and they became the ire of the empire. And it was here, under those vile of circumstances, dare I say, worse than we've yet seen, I don't know, the Lord can decide for that. It was here that God said, you know what, now is the perfect time to spread the gospel around the world. Now is the perfect time to plant churches in the centers of culture all around the world. And the gospel spread like wildfire. And the church was built and souls were saved as martyrs testified of their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, why are we fearful? Why are we anxious? Why are we unsure? We know how this all ends. We know the last chapter of the book. We do not fight for victory, but from victory. Therefore, we need not fly away and hide. Rather, we walk by faith and take refuge in the Lord as we seek to be useful to Him. Quickly and lastly, when we look forward, we're comforted. That's in verse 7. David looked up to the Lord. That faith led him then to look forward to what the Lord would bring. Verse says that the Lord loves the righteous because he is righteous. And because of that, the upright shall see his face or behold his face. In other words, God's judgment on the wicked in verse 6 will lead to ultimate victory in verse 7. Praise be to God. We're losing now in a human perspective. But there's no ultimate reality to this loss. We ultimately win. Because God, the righteous judge, will bring judgment on the wicked, and then he will make his dwelling place with the faithful. That's what we saw on Christmas Eve, right? Revelation 21 and 22, God will bring a new heaven and a new earth, and he'll bring down to that new earth a new Jerusalem, a new dwelling place, a new city. And in that city, God will dwell with us, and we will dwell with him. 
This look forward brings comfort to David and to all who believe. Can endure the temporary trials today knowing that awaits us tomorrow. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, his probably his most tender letter of all the New Testament letters, the one in which he is the most transparent about how hard it is to follow Jesus and to serve Jesus. In the middle of that book, chapter 4, verse 16, he says, so we do not lose heart, meaning he's been tempted to lose heart. He's been tempted to give in, give up, and fly away. He says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. But this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Beloved, we, looking around, are confused. Looking up, it's clarified. And looking forward, we are comforted. May God bolster and encourage and increase our faith. Let's pray. Father, we long to be the church you called us to be as those who believe in our Lord Jesus and are made righteous in him. Help us to be righteous servants in an unrighteous world. Purify us in in thought and in deed. Sanctify us so that we are better fit for your use. And in so doing, Father, would you embolden us to speak the truth in love to a world that is determined to run from you. Would you bring us even this week across the paths of unbelievers that you're already at work in their hearts to soften them to this message? Would you help us, Lord, by your spirit to be courageous, compassionate, and clear as you give those opportunities? We ask in the year ahead that you would make us to be a light set on a hill for all to see, pointing to you and your glory and your truth. In Jesus' name.